In the early to mid-1900s, Lafayette Ron Hubbard was a moderately successful writer of fiction. Moderately successful meaning his family didn't starve to death while they were trying to live on the money that he earned. But he really didn't sell a lot of stories. And even though he wrote one novel, he wasn't very successful. That all changed in 1950 when he published his best-known and seminal work called Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health. And based on that book and based on the ideas in it, L. Ron Hubbard went on to found what is called the Church of Scientology. Scientology is weird. But let me try to describe it to you in a couple of minutes, weird though it is. Scientologists believe that every human being is possessed by an immortal spirit, which means it never had a beginning and it never has an end. And that means that you and I and every other human being on earth has had an infinite number of previous past lives. And those previous past lives brought trauma and hurt into our lives. And even though we don't remember them, the trauma and hurt lingers with us. And so we live in this world and we have problems in this world because of all of this past trauma in our lives. Scientology has an answer for this, and I'll come to that in a second. But let me tell you what happens after you die, because that's what most religions are interested in, right? What happens after this life is over? Well, according to Scientology, when you die, your spirit is transported to the planet Venus, where they, whoever they are, pump you full of lies and send you back to Earth. And when you get back to Earth, you roam the Earth finding a ba- looking for a baby to inhabit. You enter that baby's body and live, over, live out the process again, live another of your infinite lives in another human being. And you have all that accumulated trauma with you and you add some more to it. That's Scientology. Now, what is Scientology's goal? What do they offer to people like us? The answer is they offer what they call the ability to address that past trauma and hurt in your life through what they call auditing. When you audit, you process all this unprocessed pain and anxiety and trauma from the past in order to help you get rid of it so you can help live a a good life. And in fact, they have a word for this, which is called going clear. Someone who's gone clear has processed the trauma in their life, and now they're able to live a great life until they die and go to Venus and get pumped full of lies and get sent back again. That's Scientology for you in a nutshell, and it's crazy. It offers no hope to anyone because after you die, you're coming back to earth and you are sentenced for all eternity to relive this cycle of traumatizing abuse. And most of the time, you probably won't find Scientology. And so you may only go clear once in your infinite number of lives. There's no kingdom of God. There's no hope for perfection, and for a life free of sin, free of trauma, free of problems. Scientology offers, I guess, some temporary relief from the idiocies of life, but it doesn't offer salvation. It doesn't offer eternal life. It offers really no hope for anyone beyond the few years where you encounter Scientology. But people follow it. And the fact that people follow Scientology illustrates something that you already know, 
And that is that some people have bad religious beliefs. Scientology is just one of many examples. And you can meet people and you will meet people throughout your life who entertain and believe a number of bad theological, religious beliefs, things they believe to be true that are not only not true, but they are strange and they are unhelpful to a person's actual and spiritual life. So some people have bad religious beliefs, but this this message and this passage, the verse that we're going to focus on this morning, James chapter 1, verse 26, tells us that there's one religious belief that's worse than the others. That is, that although some people have bad religious beliefs, there's one religious belief that is actually worse than all the others. That's really the focus of today's message. And when I said that there's one religious belief that's worse than all the others, I didn't see anybody like sit forward, but hopefully, at least in your mind, you're asking the question, what is it? Hopefully in your mind, you're anticipating an answer. You're anticipating more information. You want to know what is the one religious belief that is worse than all the others. And I'll answer that eventually. But first, I want to back into it. I want to look at some of the characteristics of the worst religious belief that anyone can have. Why? Because that's what the passage does. The passage begins by telling us the characteristics of the worst religious belief that you can have, the one that's worse than all the others. And so we'll look at its characteristics first, and then we'll conclude and look at what it actually is. And the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture about the one religious belief that's worse than all the others is that it is deeply heartfelt. It is deeply heartfelt. Look with me, please, at our passage of Scripture this morning. James chapter 1, verse 26, where the Scripture says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. The key point that we need to focus on and think about right now at this moment is this. Those who consider themselves religious. Those who consider themselves religious. Look at this first phrase, this phrase, consider themselves religious. The word that's translated consider in this translation, in this passage of scripture, is a word that means to seem or to think. And in fact, some translations say those who seem to be religious. That's another way of translating this word. And the question then that we have to do for interpretation is, when we say someone seems to be religious, are we saying that to other people they seem to be religious? Or do they think themselves to be religious personally? In other words, since the word can mean either one, it can mean they seem to be or they think themselves to be, we have to decide, is James talking about how other people perceive this person or how this person thinks of himself? And the answer in our NIV, the the NIV translators made clear what they think when they put the word themselves. When it says those who consider themselves religious, the NIV translators are telling you they think it's the latter. They think this person 
seems to himself, believes himself, has concluded himself to be a religious person. And I think they're right about that. And the main reason why I think they're right about it is because later on in the verse, it says this person deceives themselves. And so I think James is talking about the internal monologue that a person has about his life, his beliefs, his faith, his religion. Now, I said that this idea, this, this, this um, false belief is deeply heartfelt, and that's why. It's because James says this person considers themselves to be religious. And that means that in their hearts, they've convinced themselves of something. They've reached a conclusion about their own faith. And what is it that they've reached about this? Well, the answer is in this word religious. Now, evangelicals don't like the word religion. You may hear evangelicals say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's not wrong. But there are passages of scripture that use this word religious in a context that would indicate Christianity. And I say evangelicals don't like this word. The New Testament writers don't really like it either, honestly. It's used once in the book of Acts and once in the book of Colossians. In the book of Acts, it describes a bunch of Jewish people, people who are, who are uh, religiously Jewish. In the, the book of Colossians, it describes people who are vaguely spiritual, Okay, and so James is grasping for a word here that can apply to any kind of religious belief. But because he is writing to Christians, we've seen this throughout the letter. James tells us that he is writing to believers in Jesus Christ in the very first verse. And throughout this book, he calls us brothers and sisters who are reading this. And in the previous section, which this is part of, this, this, this verse and, and the next verse are part of the larger paragraph that we've been studying together. I've been looking at it piece by piece, but it's really one large paragraph. And James has been telling the believers, he's been telling us, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. All right, and So he's writing in a context of Christians, Christian people. And if that's the case, and it is, then why does he use the word religious here? Why doesn't James say those who consider themselves to be Christians? Why does he use this vague, very general word that can be applied to any kind of religious belief? Why why would he use that to describe Christians? And I think the answer for that is this. Because there are some people who call themselves Christians who really aren't. The New Testament teaches this over and over again. That there are people who may be raised in the faith and made a profession of faith, maybe at a young age, maybe at an adult age. They've been baptized by immersion, and so they've identified with Jesus Christ and with the visible church. They believe orthodox Christian truths. And yet, the Bible would say many of them, some some of them at least, are not actually genuine Christians. And I believe James used this language, those who seem or consider themselves religious, instead of saying Christian, because he wants to highlight the fact that some of his readers are in this category. 
They think they're Christians. They tell other people they're Christians. They do some of the things, many of the things maybe, that Christian people do. And they're part of the Christian community that James is writing to. And yet, James is going to call into question the genuineness and the actualness of their Christian faith. Now, I said at the beginning of this heading that for those who have this this false belief that's worse than all others, their, their belief is often heartfelt. And this is really what I want to drill down with you on. Because it is true that there are some people in the church who know that they're not Christians. They're, they infiltrate the church for whatever reason. Sometimes it's to sow discord or false doctrine or whatever. They know they're not Christians, but they project themselves to be Christians. But that's not who James is talking about in this passage. James is talking about people who actually think in their hearts that they're Christians. They believe themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. And yet James is going to call into question the genuineness of their conversion. Now, I want to stop before I go any further and just say something here, just in in, in a sense to protect you, some of you, but also to um, put, put this in a little bit of a context for us. Because I've already suggested that there are some Christians who aren't actually Christians. They look like Christians, they profess to be Christians, but they're not really Christians. There are many Christians who actually struggle with assurance of salvation. They worry that although they have Christian beliefs and have made a profession of faith and think themselves to be Christian, there are many Christians who worry that they're not actually Christians. That was me when I was a young person, when I was a a young teenager. I had immense emotional struggles with my own assurance of salvation. My theology was orthodox. I believed that there was one God in three persons. And I believed that that one God in three persons inspired his word, and his word was infallible and inerrant. And it was and is the word of God to us. I believed that one of those three persons of the Trinity entered the human race as a man named Jesus and died for my sins. And I believed that he rose from the dead. None of those issues were, none of those um, theological concepts, none of those truths of Scripture were ever in question in my mind when I struggled with assurance of salvation. And yet I struggled mightily with assurance of salvation. It's not that I questioned the tenets of Christianity. What I questioned was my faith in Christianity. I questioned my acceptance by God the Father. I wondered whether God had actually declared over me, you are justified by my grace, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And I know that many Christians struggle with this too. Perhaps some of you, probably some of you. And so if on one hand, I'm going to talk about a passage where James questions the beliefs of some Christians, and I know, on the other hand, that many Christians already struggle with assurance. I want to say something here to try to help you, those of you who do struggle with assurance, because I don't want this to be something that shakes your faith unnecessarily. And the thing I want to say before we move forward is this. If you're the kind of person who struggles with assurance of of salvation, 
You're in good company. Many Christians do that. The people James is talking to don't have that problem. They have the other problem. They should question their faith in Jesus. And they don't. That's the problem. And so if you're the kind of person who worries about assurance, this message probably really isn't for you. You should still listen to it and consider it. But this message is for the person who's deeply convinced that they're saved. This message is for the person who believes in their heart. They seem and they think that they have genuine, religious, Christian conversion. That's who James is writing about in this passage of Scripture. That's who he's thinking about in this paragraph. And that's who he's addressing and I'm addressing in this message. There are many people who have weird religious beliefs, bad religious beliefs. But there's one religious belief that's worse than all of the others, and it can be deeply heartfelt. See, that's, I think, one of the problems that we have as Christians and in our world generally. We think that something is genuine if it's deeply heartfelt. We think that if somebody deeply feels in their heart that they're a Christian, then that they are a Christian. But the truth of the matter is, just because your belief is deeply heartfelt doesn't necessarily make it true or genuine. There are heartfelt believers in Islam. There are heartfelt believers in Judaism. There are heartfelt believers in Catholicism, in Hinduism, in Mormonism, maybe even in Scientology. Their beliefs are deeply rooted in their hearts and they're convinced that they have the truth. And yet, we know from the scriptures that those are false religions. And what James wants us to understand is the same delusion that can lead someone to think that because their attachment to Hinduism, say, is is deeply heartfelt, That same delusion can happen to people who are Christians, in quotation marks. That there are some people who deeply believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came into this world, that he died for sinners, and that he rose again. They believe everything that the Bible teaches. They are fully orthodox in every way. And they deeply believe they're Christians, but the Bible says, not necessarily. The measure of your Christianity is not how deeply in your heart you believe yourself to be a Christian. And that's what James is attacking here. That's what he's addressing here. The truth of the matter is that that our churches here in America and around the world are filled with people, many of them genuine believers, some of them not. There are people in our world who raised their hand and went forward in a Billy Graham crusade or in another type of evangelistic meeting or prayed a prayer to be saved with a friend who shared the gospel with them or who grew up in a Christian family and prayed in in a children's church or Awana to receive Christ and they got baptized and they've been in church ever since. There are people filling the churches of our world who are Christians, but Mingled among them, there's some unknown group of people, the Bible teaches us over and over again, who are not Christians. And this passage is telling us those people 
are sincerely convinced that they are Christians. The problem isn't that they're masquerading among us. That does happen. That's not the problem James is talking about here, though. James is talking about people who think they're Christians. They deeply believe they are followers of Christ, but they're not. So what do we make of these type of people? I've said that there's one type of religious belief, one type of religious experience that's worse than all the others, and it can be deeply heartfelt. And before I go on, I want to say this. This message is not for somebody else, okay? The tendency that I think a lot of us have is we listen to a message like this that calls into question somebody's profession, and we think, boy, I wish this person was here to hear that. That person sitting across the aisle from me or across the room from me or who was maybe in the 9 o'clock service or I hope is watching online, they really need to hear that. No, that's not the point. James is not bringing this up for you to question the salvation of other people. James is trying to get us to look at our own profession of faith in Jesus Christ. James is trying to get us to think about whether or not we have the one religious belief that's worse than all the others. And if you've comforted yourself over the years by the fact that your belief is deep and it's sincere, this passage ought to give you some pause. It ought to make you think. It's one of the characteristics of the kind of belief that is worse than all the others is that it is deeply heartfelt. So how do we know? How do I look at my life and know whether or not my belief is actually real or whether it feels real, it feels sincere, when it actually it isn't. Well, James is going to answer that question in the next verse, or in the next phrase in this verse, that is, when he says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues. There is one religious belief that's worse than the others. It can be deeply heartfelt, but here's the thing. It doesn't pass the tongue test. That's what James puts forth as the way to measure whether or not your faith in Jesus Christ is genuine or not. Whether your sincerely held belief is actually a reflection of the work of God in your life or whether it is something else. Before I define for you what the worst belief that you can have that's worse than all the others is, you need to look at the characteristics. One of them is you can be sincere about it and be wrong. The other is that it's going to show up in your life in a particular way. And again, the verse says, those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues. For James, one of the key tests of a person's faith is whether or not they can control how they talk. This is such a big deal for him that actually in chapter 3, He's going to spend most of that chapter talking about this very thing. How Christians talk. But now he plants a seed, and he actually plants a seed in a really interesting way in this verse. When James says in James 1.26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, that phrase, tight rein, is an image. It's a, it's an, a metaphor. 
It's the metaphor of a horse and how humanity has tamed the horse. I've never owned a horse, but I've ridden one a few times. And if you ever have, or if you've ever watched somebody ride a horse, you know that a horse is an extremely powerful animal, could easily overpower a human being if it wanted to. But somehow, because we have the bigger brains and the better ingenuity, we figured out how to tame the horse. And one of the things we do to tame the horse is we put a bit in its mouth and a bridle on it. And that bit in its mouth and that bridle allows us, for the most part, to control what the horse does. It helps us take something that is very powerful, more powerful than we do, and bring it under our control. James sees that as a metaphor for how we talk how we manage or not the words that come out of our mouths. And again, in chapter 3, James sort of plants the seed here by using that phrase, uh, keep a tight rein on their tongues. But later on in chapter 3, he's going to really develop this idea. And he's going to say that a true Christian, and that's what he's saying here, a true Christian learns how to control what happens when they talk, the words that come out of their mouths. And we need to understand what exactly what the point that James is making here. He's not saying, if you really want to be a Christian, you better get a grip on your tongue. That's not the point at all. The point is, how do you know if your faith is fake or genuine, even if it's deeply held? How can you tell if it's real or not? The answer is, it changes your life, and it changes it in remarkable ways. Now, the New Testament teaches this all over the place. And I could spend a lot of time, I won't, but I could spend a lot of time in this passage showing you various ways and various sins that the Bible says are not characteristic of people who are true Christians. And so James picks out one here. It's one that's very important to him. And why is it important to him? Well, one, he's going to tell us in chapter two that it's the hardest one to master, that mastering your mouth is the biggest problem that people have. That's one reason. But I I wonder, and this is my speculation, But I wonder if James isn't aware that this is a problem. Remember, James used to pastor these people when they lived in Jerusalem. He was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and persecutions spread these people out. They're scattered abroad, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us. And yet James knows these people well. He's led them as a spiritual mentor and as their their elder and their pastor for many years. And I wonder if he is not well aware that one of the biggest sins that was rampant in these communities was sins of speech, where people were unkind to each other and cutting in the things that they said. They were sarcastic and critical. They let jealousy rule the things that they said. I think maybe James isolates this one sin, even though he could have isolated many, because it was a particular problem in his church. And the truth of the matter is, it's a particular problem for all of humanity. Probably there isn't one of us who, do, who can't think of one, maybe probably more than one thing, that we've said in our lives that we wish we could take back. If you've ever said something that you wish you could take back, you know how hard it is to control the tongue. When James talks about the very worst kind of religious belief that you can have, and he talks about the characteristics of it, he doesn't say it's a shallowly held belief. No, he said it can be very deeply held. But the way that you know whether or not you are a genuine Christian or not is whether you have self-control. Remember, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. 
Self-control, specifically in this instance, is self-control over the things that you say. And so I've given you these characteristics. What does it look like to have the worst possible religious belief that you could have? Well, it can be deeply held, but you know that it's not working because it doesn't help you control your tongue. So what is it? What is the worst religious belief that anyone can have? It's self-deception. It's self-deception. Self-deception is the religious belief that is worse than all the others. Look at our verse again. James 1.26 says, Those who consider themselves religious, that's characteristic one, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, that's characteristic two. Then he gives us the conclusion. They deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. That's harsh. And yet it's harsh for a reason. The phrase, they deceive themselves, tells us that these people have told themselves a story. They've understood the gospel message. They've recognized the significance that Christ died for our sins and rose again. And they even believe that to be true. But they haven't believed it to be true in a way that is genuinely, positively, affirmatively provably changed their lives. Whatever they believe about their faith is all intellectual. It's not driven, it's not been driven deeply into the core of their being where it's addressed their character and their actions, specifically their words. And so James says these people have deceived themselves. Now, this phrase, deceive themselves, brings us back to a minor theme, but an important one that James has been laying out through all of chapter 1. Remember when we looked back at what James said about temptation earlier in chapter 1? And he talks about how when we're tempted, we're dragged away by our own lusts and enticed. After that, what does he say? He says, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. And in our paragraph that we've been studying the last couple of Sundays, that starts in verse 21, Actually, verse 22. James begins by telling us not to deceive ourselves. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Now he comes back to the idea of self-deception. And in verse 26, he tells us that we, that a person who has this deeply held belief but can't control his tongue, that person is self-deceived. The point is that person has heard the gospel message And they've affirmed the truth of it in some way, and they believe themselves to be recipients of the gospel. And they've actually gone through some of the motions. They've been baptized and so on. They've been involved in the Christian community. But they're telling themselves a story, and that story is that they've been saved by the grace of God, but that grace of God has never really changed their lives. The way they talk and the way they speak to other people is just as ungodly as the biggest pagan out there. So their faith that they think they have has never really changed their lives. James tells us in this passage, don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says, because if you don't, you deceive yourself. The point is, if you're not a doer of the word, you're telling yourself a story. 
And you may believe that story, but that doesn't make it true. And right before this verse, in James chapter 1, verse 21, the scripture says this, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent in you, and humbly accept the implanted word, the word implanted in you, which can save you. In verse 21, he says, accept the, the word planted in you. In verse 22, he says, be doers of the word. And then he says, don't deceive yourself. And then he comes back in verse 26 and says, if you can't control your tongue, you are deceiving yourself. Here's the point. You don't become a Christian by doing certain things. You become a Christian by receiving the implanted word. But once that word is implanted in you, a new life has begun. And that new life changes the life that you have. And one way to show the changed life, one way to know for yourself whether or not you've really been changed by the power of God and salvation is whether or not you can control the way you talk. If you can't control how you talk, if you don't have the, the, the fruit of the Spirit that is self-controlled in the things that you say, James says there is a real probability that even though you may deeply feel yourself to be a Christian, you might not be a true follower of Jesus Christ. But in addition to saying that these people have deceived themselves, James makes a conclusion about their faith. And that conclusion is found at the end here when it says their religion is worthless. Their religion is worthless. And the word worthless means exactly what you think it means. It's a word that means that it does no good, that it's useless, that it's lacking in power, that it's lacking in truth, that it's lacking in life. You see, there's a way of becoming a Christian where you accept all the truths, all the tenets of Christianity intellectually. But you never bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit, let him change your life. The people in this world who identify as evangelicals, who call themselves Christians and may have some of the external evidences of being a Christian in that they go to church and they've been baptized, they can point to things that look like genuine Christianity, but they've never really been changed. They've never really grown in their holiness. They've never become like Jesus Christ. They've never learned to talk in ways that build others up instead of tearing each other down. The Bible says while, while what they have may be true intellectually, it may be true in terms of its genuine and accurate Christian doctrine. It's not truth that's been planted in them that's changed them. That's why it's worthless. And this is why I say this is the worst kind of religious idea you can have. It's the self-deception that's involved in it. Because you see, a person like this is so close to eternal life. They found the truth in Jesus Christ. They found the truth in the gospel. They found the thing that can save a person forever in the gospel message, in the word of God. But they haven't found it in a way that's really given birth to the new birth within, which is what the Bible says happens. Jesus says, unless you've been born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. And while the facts of the gospel and the truths of Christianity and the doctrines of our faith are crucially important, 
unless they've radically changed your life and you see that change in your life over and over again, you might consider yourself a Christian. And your consideration, your um, interpretation of yourself as a Christian might be deeply held. That doesn't make it true. What makes it true is not, this isn't how you become a Christian. This is the evidence that you have become a Christian is that it changes your life specifically in the way that you talk. Now, this isn't the end of the passage. We have another verse to go, which we'll come to next Sunday. But, and James lays out there some stuff that, that characterizes the genuine Christian, has nothing to do with what we say. And so I'm saying here, James is just telling us some of the evidences, some of the ways in which we know we've been transformed by the power of God. But the point I want us to take away from this, and I think the point, the implicit point, the, the thing that James is, is doing in, in giving us this verse, and he's going to do it again throughout the book, that thing is to get us to consider our lives. Specifically, what he's telling us is we should examine the evidence of our religious beliefs carefully as an intentional act of faith. Now, again, many Christians call themselves fruit inspectors, right? And they look for the fruit of salvation in other people's lives. And some people are quick to say, I don't think that guy's a Christian because he said this or that. That is not what this message is for. This message is not for you or me to inspect the lives of other people. This message is for us to look in ourselves. If we're going to understand that it's possible we could have deceived ourselves We could have talked ourselves into believing that we're genuine Christians when we're actually not. If we understand that that's a possibility, then what we need to do is we need to take a look at our lives. None of us is perfect, of course. We all struggle in many ways, James is going to say in chapter 3, and the way we speak could be one of the struggles. It probably is. But the point of the matter is that if you have the new birth in your life, if you've been changed by the power of God, if you're a genuine Christian, it's going to show up in your life. You should be able to see the evidence of your faith in the way that you live, and you should be able to see a greater control over the things that you say. And so I don't give this message to you to try to shake you up and to try to talk you out of your profession of faith if you are a genuine Christian. I give this message to you to shake you up if you're convinced that you're a Christian, but the evidence really isn't there. Examine yourself. Look at your life. Look at the evidence of your religious beliefs as an intentional act of faith. And let the evidence tell you whether your faith in Christ is genuine or whether it's superficial. That is an intentional act of faith.